Welcome everyone, I'm Kevin Miller and this is The Ziggler Show, inspired by the grandfather of inspiration himself, Zig Ziggler. Our focus here is you and your personal development. The way to have more tomorrow is to become more today. So we bring you the best of today's world influencers and messages and discover how we can all apply new and classic methodologies of personal growth to our lives. In this episode, quit living a fragile life. We live in a time of more conveniences, automation, safety, knowledge, and creature comforts than ever. In all reality, most of us have a buffet of resources that should make our lives today easier than ever, yet we seem to be sicker and sadder than ever. As a matter of fact, in regards to personal growth, health, and wellness, it's difficult to find any stat where we are actually improving, which is astounding. In this episode, renowned author, speaker, and podcaster Neil Pasricha believes a root issue is our lack of resilience. Well, the official definition of resilience is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, being tough. But instead of pushing for anything great and invariably failing here and there and learning and getting tougher on the journey to success, being resilient, more and more we're just striving as a culture to play it safe, to get it right the first time. Neil showcases the tragedy of this and schools us on having a failure budget. It's a really needed and freeing message that Neil delivers and just a beautiful paradigm. Neil Pasricha, if you don't know him, he thinks, writes, and speaks about intentional living. He's the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including his latest, which is You Are Awesome, but his book, uh, The Book of Awesome and The Happiness Equation have together spent over 200 weeks on bestseller lists and have sold over a million copies. And if you don't know about publishing, that's a lot. He hosts the Apple Best of 2018 award-winning podcast, Three Books with Neil Pasricha, which features live conversations with guests such as Malcolm Gladwell, Judy Bloom, David Sedaris, and Chris Anderson of TED Talks. I encourage you to visit Neil, N-E-I-L dot blog and subscribe to his podcast, Three Books with Neil Pasricha. And you can get his just-released new book, You Are Awesome, at neil.blog or wherever you buy your books. So I am incredibly excited about bringing this message to you right now, and we're going to get started as soon as I share some great products and services with you. All right, so I, in doing my research, Neil, checked out your Twitter profile. It says, I write about intentional living, host of three books podcast, author of the book of awesome. I like radical authenticity and sitting down to pee once in a while. I couldn't leave that last statement without, <laughs> I, I need some context. I need some context on, on that as a, as a profile uh, on Twitter. Well, I know it's so, I, I, I get, I get asked about that sometimes, but the truth of the matter is I do. I like sitting down to pee once in a while. Guys, you know, if you're out there, you're listening, don't be ashamed. There's nothing wrong with sitting down once in a while. It's restful. It's relaxing. And on Twitter and on the internet in general, I think we are also suspicious of each other. We don't have trust of each other. We want to know what you're selling, what you're hawking, what you're going for. So I'm like trying to over reveal a little bit on the internet whenever I can to try to create trust however I can. I feel, and we know this from the research, Kevin, that trust is at an all-time low, right? We trust media less, business less, government less than ever before. Trust is shot. And so if I can reveal parts of myself through my writing, through my social media, I like to do that just, and if it's, if it doesn't, if it's inoffensive to me, I do it just so people can be like, oh, this guy's real. That's my whole goal. And there you go. I don't think I've ever started off a show talking about anything of that nature, but, uh, well, you also hit a hot button for me. So, you know, I, I have some friends 
uh, some different groups who talk literally about that. It's like the demasculation of men. Some of them sit down. So I built my house. Okay. It's up in the Rocky mountains and I fully fulfill my masculinity. I walk outside the door. I just let it rip inside my house where I have lots of children, lots of little kids whose hands are on the potty. I have women I respect. I sit down and my boys sit down. So that's a family rule. So I'm just high-fiving you on that one as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then, then your wife doesn't have to put the toilet seat down ever. No doubt. I think anybody who wants to stand up and pee and splatter in that thing, that's fine. You clean it up afterwards. So there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about splatter. I was just thinking about like, chilling. Man, as soon as- really, I, mine was more cell phone derived. Oh, no, I understand that. No, man, as soon as we, as soon as we potty trained a kid and we're in dealing with that, I thought, no way, I, I want that clean because I don't want to mess with it. Um, you know, a reason of having you, something that caught my attention when I was approached about having you on the show, Neil, was a main overview that either you or your team sent in that just talked about this essence. And, and I'll tell you, I just had lunch with my business partner and talked about this, uh, where you kind of lay out, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, the reality that we are living in a time of more conveniences, automation, safety, knowledge, creature comforts than ever. In all reality, it, it's a buffet of resources that should make us right now have the easiest time of life ever. And yet we seem to be sicker, sadder than ever. And, you know, I work in person personal growth and health and wellness. And I can't really tell you, as I was thinking about that, what are some positive health and wellness and, and, and just how we're doing overall stats that where we're getting better. And I don't know of any, and back to your point, it seems ridiculous. So if I pose the issue, I think we have a lot of people who would agree to it. Yeah. What on earth is happening? I could have 10 experts up here and they'd probably cite different root issues. You come to resilience. So I'm going to lead off everybody with that resilience. Tell, tell us about it. Sure. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I think you're bang on. We do live in the most abundant time ever in human civilization. One of my favorite books from last year was called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And I don't know if you know it, but he basically don't. says, here's the history of terrorism and violence and um, murderers. And he looks at anything we've been dying from ever in history. And he's like, look, it's the best time ever today. Like everything is better. Now we, we have, um, less disease. We have less deaths at childbirth. We have less, uh, murder rates. We have like, he's like, he paints a portrait and he's like, nothing's been as good as today. Okay. But at the same time, and this is the contrast, you already mentioned it. We have higher ever rates of loneliness, suicide, depression, anxiety. Okay. What do I believe is the root cause of all of this? It's the fact is it's because it's so easy right now to be alive. You can take you can press the button, a car picks you up from work. By the time you get home, you got a, you got food waiting on your front porch. You know, like you can, you can then just talk in your, in your house and like stuff just gets ordered to your front door mm -hmm. because it's so easy. There's no wars that we're getting conscripted into. There's no gigantic depression. There's no plagues. There's no, we don't have, deep stresses in our lives. So we also don't have the ability or the musculature, you call it resilience, it's a great word, to get through anything that we call mm -hmm. in our minds failure. Or even, and this is a key distinction, perceived failure. So when you post a photo on your Instagram, you expect your 25 friends to give you 10 likes and you get one, you think, I'm a loser. I have no mm -hmm. friends. I failed. 
I have no social connections. I feel bad about myself. Even though it's just a picture on Instagram, it means nothing. But because you have no other stress or challenge in your life, we then have not developed systems to get through challenge. This was put to me, honestly, Kevin, in a speech that I gave not too long ago. A guy runs up to me afterwards, and he's like, I don't know, late 50s, uh, you know, a uh, guy. He's like, Neil, my son graduated from high school. He was the class valedictorian. He was the captain of the football team. He went to Duke University. Then he called me last night saying, Dad, my boss sent me a rude email. And he was crying. Hmm. He's like, what have I done wrong that my son is shattered by an email? You know? It's this muscle that is missing that we haven't taken time to grow, and I call that muscle resilience. Yeah, We don't have that musculature right now. Well, and that's what I want to dig into. I mean, you somewhere in the book, you even laid out, it's a little bit of a hot button for me, the, the uh, kind of the reality of how we're shielded from failure, even like with the kids stuff. You know, gold stars, you wrote this, participation ribbons, straight A's for everyone. So my audience has heard this before because it's a little bit of a rant. Yeah, I've got kids who are in a running program every year, track, cross country, they do this. Great, great thing that happens there, but it's that deal. Everyone's a winner. It's literally their tagline, everyone gets a blue ribbon. So I'm the one dude over here, coaching his kid and high-fiving him when he comes across the line first. Of course, grateful for that, but I try to focus on their effort, man. I'm glad you did your best and it happened to win. That's great. And the kid who didn't make a good effort, we talk about that. And if he got his butt handed to them, we talk about that because, yeah, I'm, 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 um, I'm scared of that. It's kind of like the old memes you see now of hey, back in the 70s, which I, I was back then. You know, you're on your little big wheel going up a ramp, no helmet, and we actually lived through that. And today... The amount of coddling, yeah, I think to what you're saying, that ease is what is killing us. But then how do you then, we have to manufacture it. I mean, I don't have a lifestyle of manual labor that keeps me fit, trim, with muscle resistance. I just don't. It's not part of my work. I'm sitting here in front of a computer. So I have to go artificially make that happen in a gymnasium. Now I have my own at home, and I'm sitting there lifting inanimate objects, and I feel a little stupid but there we are. I mean, what do we do? What do, do we get rid of it? You know, hide the remote control so we actually have to get up and turn the TV off. It is a bit of a, we're in a hard place with our culture. And is that where we're stuck? We got to manufacture those hardships? Yes, we do. And, and you, you're making me laugh because my son's in, in T-ball this year for yep. the first time. In the very first game, he like got a kid out. Like he threw, you know, he, and, and the coach yells and screams, you there's no outs. You're not allowed to get anyone out. Everyone really? gets a hit, and the, the, the inning ends with the last kid hits a grand slam. I mean, it's programmed. Wow. You aren't allowed to get out. I mean, they're young kids, but I was like, no one can get out. You're teaching these kids the wrong way. They're like, no, no, we're trying to teach them the rules. I'm like, no, no, you're screwing them up. <laughs> they, have to, <laughs> they have to learn that they can get out. So wow. you said, what's the solution? Honestly, you hit right on it. You have to create stress and friction in your life on purpose. Here's one ex perfect way to do it, uh, Kevin, is you have to have a failure budget, okay? Here's what I tell people. Hmm. Take your salary. If it's five figures, move the decimal over three places. You got a two-figure failure budget. If you got a six-figure salary, move it over three places. You've got a three-figure failure budget. What does that mean? It means if you make $100,000, anything that costs you three figures or less to try – you do, whether that's a cooking class, whether that's a musical festival, whether that's signing up for some online graphic design course, because you just kind of felt like it. You know what? When you try stuff like that, you're going to suck at at least half of them. 
you're going to take a language course down at the local um, rec complex and you're going to hate it. And yeah. you're going to think, I can't learn German. I can't learn bridge. But when you have a failure budget ready purposefully to fail and you call it a failure budget, you now expose yourself to new situations and new attempts and new efforts where you're going to start learning some friction and yeah. that's good for you. Like you, my podcast, you mentioned it earlier, it's called Three Books with Neil Pasricha. Yep. It's, I, 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 it's a pure failure budget for me. Like I do this podcast, I make no money off of it. I, I spend about five grand a year, just like, you know what it is, getting the production of the podcast, flying to see a guest or once in a while, whatever. It's pure failure, but it is creating a learning opportunity and a vehicle for me that helps enable everything else I'm doing. I think of the podcast like a failure from the beginning and that thickens my skin yeah. as my podcast that probably has nowhere near the number of downloads as yours, but that's okay because I'm doing it purposefully to lose and to learn. The failure budget is great. You know, I'm going to pull something else again out of your message on failure that, that leads into that. I hadn't thought about it in terms of budget. I was thinking margin, but you, you say, we believe it goes like this, less failure equals more success when it actually goes like this, more failure equals more success. There's no lack of commentary, of course, on yeah. failure and pithy quotes about failure is just a step to success and yada, yada. But it, it just gotten me, it got me thinking again about why we are so docile here, why we are so fragile. And I was thinking of margin because in this life of ease, we know that anxiety and stress is higher than normal because we cram everything in. And my experience, and I'm, I'm not immune to this in my own life too, is taking that ease and we fill it so full. There's no margin of time. There's no margin of finance. There's no margin of uh, emotional uh, f faculties even. That is that another reason that you're seeing why we don't have, why we're, why we're again, afraid to do success. We don't have margin. And you said budget, actually, we don't have any budget to fail at all. Yes. I feel like that's the issue. People don't have a budget to fail. People need to spend more money and more time on experiments, Kevin, but there is a root issue that goes beyond all of this, which I want to okay. talk about really quickly. Please. Here it is. The capitalistic shrink wrap on our society after decades of layoffs and right sizing and downsizing and and um, economy tightening has left us in a place today where we have the highest ever productivity per person ever measured in history. Really? Okay. This is data from McKinsey. Uh, I use it in my book, You Are Awesome. We have doubled our productivity per labor worker since the 1950s, doubled. So just imagine that. We've done, we do twice as much per person now. And you know why? Think about how many years we've had of downsizing, right sizing. You work at a company like I did, you, the person to left you is gone. And then their, their work comes under your plate, right? This is a normal thing. But unfortunately, we no longer have space for not just idle glasses of water by the cooler. We don't have space for chit chat. We don't have space for free roaming. We also don't have space for our minds to relax and try random things. So in the book, I espouse having a failure budget. Specifically, what I recommend people do is if you have a five figure job, well, here's your failure budget, two figures. You just move it over three places. Yeah. If, you, if you got a six figure job, well, you got a three-figure budget. You got a four-figure, you know, it, it, so like if you make $100,000, what I'm saying is any expense that costs you three figures or less, you should just do. Whether that is a far-flung music festival, whether that is a cooking class, whether it's taking Spanish on Saturdays, whether that's, you know, signing up for a peewee hockey tournament, these things all cost money. 
but they are explorations that will totally accelerate your learning rate by letting yourself be in situations where you're okay to fail. Okay. Okay. And so what I'm, and, and part of what I'm also espousing here though, is cause you might, you might say to me, Oh, well, Neil, like, what are you going to, you know, you can't change the economy. We all have too much to do. We all have, we all have too many emails in our inbox. We all have too much in our inbox. And I say to you, you need to make space so desperately where you don't have any machines tethered to you. You aren't on your cell phone. You are spending time in nature in a forest because we know from the research that is actually the source of your best ideas and potentially your largest scale, most productive insights. Yeah. So I call in the book, I call those untouchable days. And I have a whole model on how people can set those up for themselves. I, I personally do one to two untouchable days every single week. I want to ask about, I want to go back to the workplace though, and ask about failure too, in, in, in light of what you're talking about, having a failure budget. So obviously if you are self-employed as yeah. we are, I am, I have free reign, maybe too much uh, to yeah. fail, to spend money, to do whatever in the workplace, however. And, I, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm literally asking this out of ignorance because I've never had a real job. Uh, and, and I've never been in the corporate structure and whatever, you know, in, so today people are more productive. Do they feel or, or literally even have in those environments room to fail? Or are they so stressed that they just have to get it right? They've got to do what they're supposed to do. And there's not the space in there. How, and if not, give some counsel. Yeah. You know what corporations are not? They are not safe spaces to fail. Okay. That's in my corporations, question. if you fail, you're fired. Yeah. Uh, we don't think you can handle it. We don't think you can do the job. And you know what else? Uh, I did 10 years in human resources at Walmart. Many times I gave somebody an opportunity. They could either take a demotion or they could exit the company with a package. I'm not lying when I say to you, Kevin, 100% of people when given that option or pretty close to 100, take the package. That means in a corporate atmosphere, when you take a demotion, i.e. you go down a level, um, that looks so bad that you'd rather leave the company to save face. And one thing I always tell companies is praise demoters. Put them on a pedestal. Congratulate them for finding a job that they can add their skills. This is people at the end of their career that maybe like, can't be a vice president anymore, but would be a great director or a great manager. This is the knowledge that you don't want leaving your organization. Companies are so averse to failure that when, when I even say the word demotion, people think that's a negative. I think that should be a positive word. I think that should be a word that actually is great, is looked positively upon. Companies ask people, here's another example. Companies ask people all the time to take lateral transfers. You know, oh, we can't promote you up, but why don't you, you know, you were in finance your whole career. Why don't you try accounting or why don't you try marketing? We'll, let, we'll give you a lateral position. And then you know what happens almost always in those positions? You can ask people. They fire those people <laughs> because they, they can't – they don't know how to do the new job sure. and they have no tolerance for, for the failure rate required for them to learn it. So organizations are so risk-averse to failure for the most part, and it totally prevents them from having new ideas yeah. and from being innovative and from making – stronger connections uh, across the silos of the organization. Right. It's hugely, hugely a problem. 
Friends, that right there is a massive issue. If corporations are not giving you room to fail, which means you must keep your nose down and not grow, you've got to figure out another option. Next in this show, Neil talks about something very uncommon and most illogical. It's the value of putting personal stories into your resume or your story, your bio. Uh, Really intriguing insight from a guy who worked in higher up HR for such a long time. So we're going to come right back after I share some great products and services from our show sponsors. Well, then it sounds like if we, if you're in a position, you can't do that yet. You're one, we're talking about you to, to, to grow. We have to fail. We have to, you know, Michael Jordan didn't spend his entire career three feet from the basket so he could make it every time he backed up until he couldn't. And he perfected (laughs) that, you know, you can't, if you're going to gain weight or, or gain muscle mass, you've got to lift more than you can comfortably do to break down. And we know those semantics yeah. So if that's the if that's where we're going to grow and you can't do it in your work, then back to your failure budget. It's it's how can you do it on your own off somewhere else outside of the traditional nine to five, uh, so that you can fail, break down, tear down, and grow stronger. Here's one way that every single person listening to this podcast, uh, and you got such a passionate fan base. If I can make a tiny little dent in the universe, here's one thing right now. We all do this. We are guilty of making our LinkedIn profiles or our resumes these perfect airtight models of perfection. Like I worked from here to here. I did these results. And you, you and I both know that that's not the way the world works. Sometimes you get fired. Sometimes you want a three-month sabbatical. Sometimes yeah. you and your wife your wife had a miscarriage and you took six months off to be with her family. What I would like to challenge every listener on this program is put some of those natural human air pockets, left turns, unique, unique experiences back into your resume or your LinkedIn profile. And I tell you this from somebody who spent 10 years in human resources, those were always the greatest areas of learning whenever I interviewed people. So when I was at Walmart mm-hmm. interviewing people, I would look at those little pockets. I say, what'd you do there? And they said, oh, that's the year I took off to travel to Asia. I learned, I taught myself Japanese and my wife and our two kids, you know, we went to Japan. I was like, wow, what, did, what an incredible insight that could help our organization. But people take those things off the resume. Okay. So you want to you want to talk about how we can increase failure rate? One way is we can stop lying to ourselves, <laughs> and I'm including myself in that. Right. But we can also we can just make sure that our rougher patched careers can. We have to show that we have to tell people what happened in between jobs. Like you couldn't get a job out of college, you spent a year taking yoga teacher training. Tell me that, please. That would be very helpful for me. That is not a failure. That is part of the growth to become the person you are. And we need to know that because it enlivens you and enriches you in ways that our organization may not understand on on a spreadsheet, but we know that that will help round you out as a human and that will give us more leadership capacity and more potential for your growth. Like it's huge, yeah. but we don't get that yet. So that's how, uh, one, one, one thing I need, that we need to do. I, I love it. I'm envisioning instead of Instagram, we have honest Graham uh, or something yes. like that. I, I, I don't have that stuff The the gaps, if I give mm-hmm. my trajectory, I can tell you exactly what happened and they're not the Instagram post worthy things. I'll never forget uh, a long time ago. Thank goodness. But I in uh, I don't even know if it was desperation. It was just trying to prove to my wife I, I'm I am making an effort here as I was dealing with business stuff. I applied for a job with a tow truck company, mm. uh, and didn't get it. 
I wasn't even good enough for that at that point, apparently, or, or they were saving me from, uh, from tragedy there, but it meant the world to my wife that is not on any resume anywhere I've ever done any bio. I should say, I don't use a resume, but okay. I want to go back to you in HR though. Um, because you talked about this, it's actually in secret three in the book. And you said, uh, you're working HR uh, with folks who got fired, how tragic it was, but always when you saw them later, and this is what you wrote, it was a good yeah. thing, or at least they had made it. And so it got me thinking about, I mean, I've worked with so many people. I had a huge membership grow, uh, a company uh, helping people move from traditional employment to self-employment. And I don't, I'm sure it exists, but I do not know a tangible story where somebody says, you know what? I went out, I tried this business. I totally wrecked me, destroyed my life, and now I'm homeless. Now, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but somebody out there is probably hearing this and it actually happened. I never heard it. I have heard stories of people who kicked butt in their business, made $100 bucks, and then a lot of bad stuff happened as a result of that. You know, there was a divorce, an affair. There was, you know, money stuff out there. But over here on just the, I want, I want to try something, I don't hear that. I hear what you're talking about in HR that, gosh, it seemed tragic at the time. But it led to often a good thing. And that's what you outline in the book and experience face to face in a role that most people don't have the uh, it's a, a challenging role that you had in HR to experience that. That's profound. It's totally profound. And just just to for the listeners, you know, it's it, I, I had a job in human resources where I had to accompany managers to fire people. Okay. This was not my whole job, but it was part of my job for a long time. And so I sat in the room. I was the one trying to offer compassion and empathy to the person getting fired, but also I was trying to coach and humanize the manager who, by the way, was also heavily losing sleep over this. Yeah. I would walk them to the parking lot. And as you said, Kevin, they would say, my life is over. What am I going to do now? This is the end for me. And the root issue that I discovered, and you said I shared it in secret number three uh, of You Are Awesome, is this. There's a famous 2013 study, although I say famous, I'd never heard of it before I did the research for the book, um, came out in Science Magazine. And it was done by a guy named Daniel Gilbert, who is a Harvard psychologist, most famous for writing the book called Stumbling on Happiness. He did it with a couple other researchers. And the, uh, the, the title of the, of the study Wait, can, is called- can I, can I brag so that you know that I wrote- Oh, did you know it? Uh, of course. Yeah, totally. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was, well, out of your book, I, I, I was so enamored with it. Can I, I'm going to steal your thunder. End of History Illusion. Yes. Uh, okay, so I looked at that. I looked at his book. I hadn't known it, Stumbling on Happiness. I emailed him about an interview. And uh, for, for candidness, uh, he said, thanks for your kind invitation. Having spent the last few years being interviewed about everything I know and a lot of things I don't, I'm taking a break from interviews. So I can spend a bit more time in my actual life, but I appreciate your interest. And I'm sorry to disappoint you. That's person number four in the last four years who's declined an interview with me. But my point was that it was so profound. You put it in there. So now yeah. tell us about the end of history illusion. Oh, I love that. By the way, I also asked Dan Gilbert, just so we can trade Dan, Dan Gilbert rejection stories. <laughs> I asked him for a blurb for my last book, The Happiness Equation, the book before this one. Yeah. And he wrote back to me and said, Sorry, I now only blurb people uh, who have personally rescued me from burning vehicles. I mean, <laughs> That's so brilliant. I then replied with a picture of me photoshopped in a car burning. No way. Yeah, yeah, just to try to make him laugh and send me a blur, but he didn't reply. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, the, the, the study, I, I, I love the guy. I, it wasn't a shot at him. It was more just like, I yeah. love, hey, look, it'd be a lot easier for him not to, not to even reply to your email totally. or not to reply to mine, right? Totally. Like, that's the easy way out. 
So he's doing something very gracious by replying. So what is the end of history illusion? Well, the end of history illusion is the fact that all of our brains, including yours and mine, people listening, and Dan Gilbert's, because he he's the one that did the study for his yeah. own reason. Um, we confuse two things. We confuse the improbability of change okay. with the picture ability of change. Okay, explain that. So picturability of change. When you get fired from a company, can you picture yourself uh, as a top executive in another company? You definitely can't. So do you think it's therefore probable? No. You think it's totally improbable. We think improbability and picturability are the same. If you can't picture it, it'll never happen. Right. We think after you have a miscarriage, you'll never have a baby. You think after you have a breakup, you'll never get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You think after divorce, you'll never find a loving marriage because we confuse the improbability of it with the pictureability of it. Hmm. Okay. I made up that word pictureability, but I'm trying to say. No, I, I like it. It makes me think of vision. I, I was just interviewed earlier this morning. We were talking about vision. And if you can't envision, if you can't really see yourself there, it's not yep. going to happen. So I'm tracking. Exactly. Okay, great. So we confuse those two things. So, so people, you know, would, would walk out into that parking lot after getting fired and in their brain, they're thinking, what am I going to do now? Yeah. But that was translating in their brain. That was tracking as you, I like that we're tracking to, I will never find anything. And yet those things are totally different. You don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know who's going to ask you for a job. You don't know what job you're going to apply to and you're going to get. You don't know if you even want a job. Yeah. You don't know anything. But because you don't know, you think it's nothing. And this is the problem. We call it the end of history illusion because when history seems to end for you, a breakup, uh, um, getting fired, whatever, you think nothing, it won't continue. What, this, what they did in this study is, they asked people who were 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old. They said, hey, how much changed for you in the last 10 years of your life? And everybody would say, like, like you would, I'm sure. It's like, oh, my gosh, everything. You know, I met a new person. I got a new job. It was tumultuous. It was up and down. Woo, I sure been a crazy decade. And then the researchers would say, oh, yeah, what, what do you think about the next 10 years? And everybody would say, oh, it'll be just like this. I'll be living in this house with still this person and still this job. Like we can't picture anything changing. So if you're if you're flying high, if you're on top of the world and you have a great job and a loving spouse and, and kids, you fine. But if you have a problem, you don't think you'll ever get out of the problem. And that's the problem. And so Daniel Gilbert did this study because he went through slings and arrows. You know, he I think he went through a breakup. I think he lost some work and stuff like that. He thought, well, I'm gonna am I gonna feel crappy about this in a year from now? He thought he was, but he knows a year later he didn't. And so when he tracked it, every single person thought whatever happened in the last 10 years would be fixed for the future. We thought that history, we un uniformly believe that history ends today. Yeah. We have this human tendency to think that. Yeah. So when you get fired, you think it's over. I'm in my parents' basement forever. I'll be combing Indeed listings for the rest of my life. <sighs> Yes. I, it made me think of, so I was a, a past pro cyclist about injuries. I had some pretty significant ones and it always amazed me at how, I mean, the injury only had, I had full use of my leg, arm, finger, whatever, uh, for the past, however many years I injured it so many days ago. And, and at this point I can't imagine ever moving it without pain again. And, and I just realizing exactly. that, that thing. Okay. So in going to back to your improbability of change, yeah, with people who try something, who go forward, who risk failure and then failure, I, th I feel like statistically, and I haven't done the study, but in my own experience, 
the probability of them, regardless, even if they fail, of resurrecting, of their being redemption, maybe even progress as a result of that is so high. Well, exactly. And, and you aren't giving enough credit to what you're learning from that, that sort of crucible moment that you're going through. This breakup helps you find a partner that's a better fit. Yeah. This job helps you find a role that you know you would or wouldn't like. You won't just accept the next thing that comes. You're like, hey, you know what? I really find that I really need to work at home. Or turns out I really need to be with a partner that's ambitious. That's been a problem for me in my past, whatever it is. So you're also growing through that in ways that you cannot reflect upon yet because you don't have the distance or the space to see how you've changed. It really feels like that's where uh, that's where wisdom comes from. It's re- it feels really hard to gain great insight, great wisdom without trying a lot of things, experiencing a lot of things, and, and having some failure, at least some big challenge. Well, what a great uh, segue then into... Uh, you writing about, I was so stoked to see you writing about dot, 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 which I, I, I use that so much in my writing. I write very conversationally to the point where I've had friends joke that my first book is going to be dot, dot, dot. And I never bothered to look and you title to- still available. Uh, it's title still available, but, but you told me it's the ellipsis. I had, I've, I think I've heard that word. I never, I didn't I think about putting them together, but, uh, and so I'll tell everybody who's listening. You said, uh, what you, know, you ask question, what is an unfinished sentence? Everything. And I love that. And you then go on to use the word yet as well. So dot, dot, dot. And yet talk about that a little bit because we're talking about the experiences from it uh, j- just a moment ago. Sure. Well, the ultimate, so underpinning you are awesome. This book mm-hmm. is this big word called resilience. Mm-hmm. And so I opened the book with chapter one is actually my mom's story. And she suffered mm-hmm. from a lot of traumas growing up. Um, East Africa, her, her, her dad died at a very young age. There was a, a dictator coming in there. Um, her family lost all their wealth. Um, she, she, fled the, she fled the country with her, with her mom. She was pushed into an arranged marriage with my dad from a poor family. Thank, thank goodness, because otherwise I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, she, she moved to a continent, this one that we're in, North America, that she didn't know a single person at. She landed in the suburbs in a town where when you said you were vegetarian, which she was, there was no food that didn't have meat in it. Uh-huh. Like she, she had no Indian people. Around. So she had a sim- sincere, you know, and, and everyone does, but she, she had these like constant, like boom, 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 her whole life. And when I'd ask her, how'd you get through it? Mm-hmm. You know, this thematic answer came back over and over again, which is that all she did was choose to continue to breathe, to move, to operate wherever she was next and so i labeled that that action i call it in the book adding a dot 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 yeah so you know you can think of an arranged marriage as a sentence she probably did in her mind she was she you know i didn't want to get an arranged marriage i just met this guy once but rather than think my life is over i'm being married to someone who i don't want to be or i don't know she thought well let me let it continue and see where it goes turning a period into an ellipsis allows her story to continue and allows her to be curious. You stay fascinated instead of frustrated as you move forward. I know it's a funny metaphor, but I noticed that in my life, whenever I'm faced with some wall or something that feels like an inevitable finish line, if I can just retain that sensibility that my mom always had, which was, hey, just keep going and see where it leads, then you can find yourself in a better place. And I, I actually, in the book, went and discovered the history of the ellipsis. So it's actually a fight. It's actually only 500 years old. Um, there's a, a play, um, 
Andrea. Uh, was performed for the first time in, in 1476, and they used the ellipsis for the first time, and it was like an unfinished utterance. And my argument, uh, which you resonate with, Kevin, is that that's what your life is. Yeah. Everything in your life is unfinished. Every relationship is unfinished, that, whether that's with a person, whether that's with an organization, whether that's with children. It's all unfinished. So whenever you've hit a bump in that relationship, look, I, I have a little kids. Sometimes we have a fallen out. Like Sometimes we have a, a nasty fight. Like It's not healthy. And then I have to just think to myself, Add a dot, dot, dot. Let's move to tomorrow. Let's 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 move forward gracefully and hold on to this idea that resilience partly means moving to the next day if you've had some severe challenge. Um, the other thing I wanted to just say, because you brought it up, is that sometimes it's just about adding this word yet. Yeah. And I have been trying to teach my kids this. When they say, I can't, I can't speak Japanese or I don't like broccoli or I'm not creative. I say just add the word yet to the end of the sentence because it holds open the possibility that you might one day. I don't know Japanese yet. I don't like broccoli yet. I'm not creative yet. And if someone listening, I mean, it's a leadership-oriented show. If you're like, you didn't get the promotion, I'm not a vice president yet. You know, you you, you fall out of a relationship, I haven't found my, my partner yet. Like, just holding on to that word yet enables you to think I could and it, it will happen later. Well, yeah, it's the depiction that we have of the immature teenage girl, which I can pick on because I've had a bunch uh, that, <laughs> you know, whatever's happened and the boyfriend left me or, you know, I didn't get the homecoming queen or whatever. And it's just everything. And, yeah. and, and we, we laugh at that. And yet we as adults, my gosh, especially if we go back to uh, the job world and a failed business or getting fired from a job. And we know, I mean, it devastates people. People are killing, you know, committing suicide from these things because they don't see it. I, you mentioned your mom though. And I was uh, really intrigued by that. The, the, the issue where she had yeah, drastic life change. She goes from uh, being kind of in a, in a, not an affluent area. And then boom, she's in that affluent boarding school. And you tell the story and folks, he uses that story in there. She goes in there and after arriving, wanted to go home. Boom. That's what hit me like a ton of bricks that now we're back to that pool of comfort and safety and what's known. And so as much as we're talking about the fear of failure, I don't hear as much. And I feel like that's what you were pointing to in the book or talking to in the book that we also have can have do we have is a question for our, for all of us as we're looking at it. Is it a fear of, of failing here or is it a fear of success mm. over here and the risk and the unknown of that? I don't hear a lot of verbiage to that, but you talked about it, drew me to it. And I found myself pondering that thing, man, we need to bring that sucker to light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what, uh, what, what do you feel like that failure is failure or fear of, I'm sorry, fear of success an equal part that we're probably missing. We're just thinking about failure, what we could well, lose. Cause, cause you, you and I, and many people, we have, you know what you think, who am I to get a promotion or I don't deserve the partner I'm with, or they're so much better than me. Mm-hmm. And actually our inferiority complexes or the self-talk that we have in our mind is preventing us from reaching our fullest potential. Yeah. And that's a really good point. You know, it's funny. I, 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 when I was writing, writing, you were awesome. I came from the place of like the opposite, like having anxiety and worry about like failure, but you're right. You know what the, they say? The number one thing amongst CEOs, uh, what CEOs experience is imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. The idea that I don't believe I should be here. Mm-hmm. And that prevents you from being your full self because you then don't have the confidence to demonstrate your full capability in the role. 
you are demure in meetings. You don't ask questions, even though they're in your head. You won't ask them. You think, oh, it'll be a stupid question or, you know, I, maybe, I, maybe I'll say the wrong thing. But actually, what we need from you is your fullest self. We need your brightest potential. We need you to take risks because then, and only then, and you'll find out, that's how you end up getting promoted because we, because everybody else is too scared too. Well, and that's the one I resonate with. I mean, that is, I've yeah. always been a business owner. I have CEO roles uh, right now in two different uh, businesses. And I've, at the moment, I'm not going to, I haven't arrived, right? This isn't the end of the, end of the world. Uh, well, can I just also point out the fact that you just told me about 10 minutes ago that you read a thing in my book yeah. that featured Dan Gilbert. You then scrounged around online to find his email address. You didn't ask me for an intro or anything. You just went, I'm just going to cold call this guy. Yeah. You sent him a pitch that was captivating enough that he responded to, and nothing held you back from doing that. That's actually that's actually a lot more than I think you might even notice yourself. That's actually really hard to do for it, almost it, everyone. It is, and I, I've got a good comfort level with that. But at the, at the I was going to say at the end of the day, no, actually it's the beginning of the day when I sit down. I am aware of, and I'll wave at and say hi, and then go do what I'm going to do anyways to the imposter syndrome. Really? Uh, yeah, totally. I, I, I do, and I wow. think I'm, I'm. I don't know enough to lead this company, these people to. Yeah. Figure, it'll just come in, and I've. I don't know if I've made friends with it. I. I. I'm glad to know that it's there and uh, recognize it, and then go do what needs to be done. So yes, thank you for that. I do. I do what's needed to be done. I know I'm competent. It's not an incompetence aspect, but it's this little lurking thing that uh, maybe I need to do some more work to figure out where it came from and why. Well, uh, it's good though. You're talking, you know what? This reminds me, I talked to a guy named Pete Holmes. I don't know if you know him, a stand-up huh. comic, hmm. uh, very successful guy. He used to have a show called the Pete Holmes show. I just interviewed him for my podcast, okay. three bucks. And he told me the first thing he does every morning when he gets out of bed is audibly, like loudly actually say the word. Yes. He actually says it. It's the first word he says every day. Yes. And what he's doing in his brain is saying yes to the day. Huh. Yes, I'm here. Yes, I will have a good time. Yes, I will connect with people. He's like choosing for the whole day to say yes to the day, to accept That's it and great. to embrace it and to amplify. I love that. And I'm like, you say that like, yeah. you know, you're in bed, you say yes. And he's like, my wife knows I'm weird. It <laughs> reminds me, I own the movie Yes Man with Jim Carrey. Uh, I don't, I don't even know the movie. Oh man. Uh, it's yes, man. It's, it's him going from just a, a no pushing off life to getting challenged to say yes to everything. Of course it's hilarious, but it makes a very poignant point on saying yes. So if you like that, if, based on that story, I, uh, I'm not a big recommender of movies or books. I get so worn out with that, but I own it. I'll just say that I own that movie. Um, back on perception of, yeah, this is the end of the world. And it's as opposed to a dot, 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 the, here's something else out of your book that I actually read this. I, I guess I obviously was doing some uh, research at home, read it out loud to my family, whichever kids and, and my wife that was in the uh, room at the time about how we see ourselves. And you used a study that showcased women with and without anorexia who, and I'm, this is quoted right out of the book, while distracted, walked through a doorway. The anorexics turned their shoulders and squeezed sideways through the doorways much more than the group without anorexia did. Uh, tell, tell, I, I know yeah. you wrote that cause you're seeing, we all have that. I would say that I, I got it. I would have to think we all have that. Dis well, just me talking about that. Here I am succeeding yeah. on many levels. And yet really I, I deal with this imposter syndrome. Where did that come from? I, I mean, I, I even know I'm doing a good job. I know I'm competent. I know I'm going to come through. 
Where does that stand? I don't know. And here's somebody who's probably thinner than the rest. If she's anorexic going through and more often than not turning and it's a complete farce. And yet here we are. So there's a famous 2013 study. It's called too fat to fit through the door. Okay. Uh-huh. It was done by uh, uh, Anouk Kaiser and a team of research from uh, a university called Utrecht university over in the Netherlands. They watched women with anorexia and women without anorexia walk through doorways while asking them to do a simple task that mentally distracted them from paying attention to their bodies. So maybe they asked them a question as they were walking through the doorway. What happened? Anorexics turned their shoulders and squeezed sideways through the doorways much more than the group without anorexia. Even though they had plenty of room to walk right through, they thought mm-hmm. they were too fat to fit. We're back to visioning. Oh, how are they vision themselves? I yeah. mean, this is the issue. The issue here is your image of yourself may be projecting outwards in your actions in totally nonsensical ways, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I look at you. Look, I just told you I had a podcast, three books, right? I look at you with The Ziegler Show, and I'm like, your podcast is way bigger than mine. Right. But you probably look at, you know, Mark Marin's podcast or, you know what I mean? You're, we compare ourselves to always someone better than us. And I think the yeah. internet's a big problem for this. Yeah. And I've had a debate with Malcolm Gladwell about this. He thinks, oh, the internet's great because you can find your own tribe in your little sub community. I said, no, the problem with the internet is you always think you're worse than everybody else. Yeah. Because you, no matter who you are, even Oprah doesn't, thinks, oh, Justin Bieber's got more followers than me on Twitter. Yeah. Like it never ends unless you're the best in the world. Yeah. And even that person's looking behind them because someone's catching up. So the problem is we, <laughs> yeah, and, and we, it's the anorexic model. Like you're squishing through a doorway that you don't got to squish through because you're doing fine. I, I want yeah. a survey or, or something because we're talking about, no, I was going to say our blind spots. That's more though than that. It's our misperceptions yes. of ourselves. And when I read that, I have always thought, I think as a kid, I was told that. And, and I think, I mean, I still believe that in, in general, my thoughts are impatient thoughts. I do not like to wait on things. I do not like to waste time uh, that I'm impatient. And telling my wife that it's a couple years ago, I was talking about how impatient she says, honey, we have, we have nine children. We have, you know, you have these, I, I see you interacting with our kids and with other people. You're one of the most patient people I've seen. And I stepped back then and I kind of third person looked at it and thought, okay, by what I do, my actions and my behavior, she's right. I do act in ways that are patient, but I think of myself as impatient, label myself because I have impatient thoughts. But if they're perceiving me as actually behaving and being patient to them, I am patient. Who's right? Uh, and there we are to that misperception to some degree. And I'm thinking how, how misled are we all to some degree? We're doing this. Like you said, we're doing actions and behaviors based on uh, something in our head. That's not true. It's can dramatic. Also, Please. Can I also just point out, I love this and thank you for your vulnerability and sharing all this because it's so healthy and it's therapeutic for you, not just you, but for me, I'm listening to this and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is really resonating with me because I, I'm like this about so many things. I just told you about my podcast I'm, 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 I'm thinking about. But here's another one. The, the systems we have today, especially cell phones, especially social media apps, are designed to show us comparisons to other people. Right. I heard an interview recently with the CEO of Twitter, um, and I think what's his name, Jack, Jack Dorsey. 
And I think it was on the Rich Roll podcast. And he was like, you know, we made the decision to put follower count in big, bold numbers at the top of your screen. Uh We choose what you're going to focus on. Uh So, of course, everyone compares their followers. Everybody else's. And when you go to somebody, you see how many they have. Here's the thing that we're not doing because it's not sexy. And I'm doing this myself more and more. I buy a cheap notebook, like a little tiny square notebook. And the metrics I care about about myself, about my own life, I make a monthly dashboard on it myself and I measure myself against my own numbers. Then the next month I measure myself again, but I'm only comparing myself to my past Mm. month. So you see, and so on mine, I can just tell you really simply, you know, at the center, I've got my, what I call an icky guy. This is uh, the reason I get out of bed in the morning. Mine is to help people live happy lives. Top left, I've got, I call it strong core. And that's, you know, writing one chapter a month. Uh, publishing three articles a month, um, giving four four speeches a month. Okay, that's like the, the things I kind of do. The other side is like I'm fa- I'm learning fast. It's like am I reading eight books every month? Blah blah blah. You don't need to know my numbers, but I'm happy to share them. But my point is, I have a little dashboard that I fill out for myself, and then I compare every month how I did compared to myself. And this is the thing we're not doing enough: comparing yourself to yourself. Yeah. That is, and that progression is strong. The comparison, uh, gosh, somebody wrote a book with it, about it. It was uh, uh, Rachel Cruz, Dave Ramsey's daughter, and she wrote a book about keeping up with the Joneses and, and kind of on this. And we do that. And I do, I, man. I, I, Neil. I sometimes I'm, I'm ashamed of myself when I'll see some person, and it's some comparison that it makes no difference to my life. It's so stupid, but it's somebody who did X, Y, Z, and they're younger. That's been one now that I've always yeah, been. You, yeah. You look at their age. You're yes. like, oh, oh, well, they were 34 when they got the first book published. I was 28. He, like you or, or you feel the opposite. You're like, yeah. I, I look at Ryan Holiday. He's a friend of mine. He's 33 or something. He's got eight. But I'm like, how does this guy have so many books? He's so young. Ryan yeah, Holiday. Is that the, is that the, the stoic? Uh, yes. I have that book. Great book. My dad sent it yeah. to me. Right. Happy what? to introduce you if you want to talk to him. That be would be great. That Yeah, the name just struck a bell because that yeah. book, I actually got the book then from my business partner as well. The Stoic, uh, what is it? It's like it's like a daily de- – Yeah, uh, ego, ego is the enemy, obstacles the way, the daily Stoic. The probably. daily Stoic. That was yeah. it. That was it. Yeah. Okay. Well, It's a great writer. You even though I even though I feel terrible about myself around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, maybe I don't want to meet him. I don't know. Um, the you have a, a segment in the book, and it's not the first time that I've heard it, but I but the way you came into it really resonated with me, and I want to do a good service to everybody listening because it's such a big issue. So it's titled, tell yourself a different story. You referenced uh, your interview with Seth Godin and him referencing the book of Est by Luke Reinhardt. Yeah. And he summarized, I'll I'll read what you wrote. uh, Seth's Seth's quote. He said, your problem is not the outside world. Your problem is the story you're telling yourself about the outside world. And that story is a choice. If you're not happy with the story, tell yourself another story, period, that simple. And most people will hear what I just said and not change anything. Okay. Got it. I think everybody will hear that. It's a, I mean, that's a, that's a good internet meme right there. I mean, that's strong, that's stout. We nod our head, but I don't think I was gonna say most people, 
because uh, I, I hate to say that it's, without including myself, myself too. Hopefully I've learned this. I mean, I do believe that I get the changing the perspective. I think most people discount that at heart though, because they hear that and they think, look, what happened is what happened. It is the truth, especially if it's negative. If I was a bu- abused as a child, it was terrible. It's tragic. Don't tell me I can just simply paint it like a, I didn't have a loving home. I can't say, Hey, I was born in the suburbs and had a nice home and a happy family. And it was beaver cleaver. And yeah, that did not happen. So it's, they confuse what we're talking about here. When in essence, and I'm going to ask you to comment on it. We're talking about perspective, um, maybe redemption, because again, what happened back there, that was terrible. And that's not what we're talking about. But I, I really see people experience people taking that not into it, but not really taking it to heart. So when you've got something, so I'm going to throw it at you, Neil, and put you yeah. on the spot with it. You've got somebody who literally has a something bad happened. You talked about um, you know, have, uh, if you, if you've, uh, you and your spouse have had a miscarriage or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there are some things we're not saying that you take that and pretend like it wasn't bad, but tell yourself a different story because we know it's dramatically profound. We have two people, uh, Zig talks about that in one of his books, two brothers, alcoholic family go later in life. And one of them is an alcoholic life is shattered. And he said, well, my dad was an alcoholic. How could I be any different? His brother, incredibly successful, great, fruitful life. And he says, well, my dad is an alcoholic. How can I not go the other way? So I'll, I'll, I'll lob that at you. I, I just think it's a giant here. This is personal development. We're talking about yeah. your book. We're in the self-help arena and this is so profound. And yet I think by far and large, the masses are still missing how to actually do this, especially to the, to the big negatives in their life. So um, first of all, I want to bring you out on my book tour to be my hype because you just like totally <laughs> nailed the summary of that chapter. You know, a Knight's Tale, do you know that movie, the Knight's Tale where yeah, uh, it's kind of, sure. and, and he has the guy, he's the writer and he comes and introduces everybody. <laughs> it's about presentation. I love that. So yeah, I'll, com- I'll come with you. Um, so here's the thing. Um, when I was a six week old baby, I had a, a operation because I was crying. I, the first six weeks of my life, I was crying. My parents couldn't figure it out. Turns out I had an undescended testicle. So they took me in for a surgery. Uh, it was a hernia and I ended up with one ball because I grew up in the eighties. I never knew that that was a thing. Like I was like, Hey, everyone's got one nose. Everyone's got one mouth. Everyone's got one heart. Like what's the, you know, you, you got one ball. What's the big deal? In a ninth grade gym class, I'll, 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 <laughs> I won't go into the story cause it's a big part of the book, but my, my grade nine teacher made a wisecrack. Everyone started laughing and it suddenly hit me. Oh my gosh, everyone else has two. Like I really just didn't even know till like grade nine. It was like hitting in the balls was like a figure of speech. Just like he, I was so hungry I could eat a horse. Like yeah. it, it just didn't hit me. And here's the thing. The fact was I had one testicle, okay? The story I was telling myself was I am disfigured. Hmm. I will never mate. I, I'll never... I'll, no one will want to love me. I, I may never, I will never have children. You see, I added on top of the fact a ton of other different stories that I didn't perceive as stories. I thought they were the truth. Fact. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So when someone says, um, I failed biology and in their head, they're thinking, oh, I failed my parents. Hmm. Now there's a story added to the fact when someone says, um, you know, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic. Well, that's that's a fact, maybe, but 
but the but the I shouldn't say maybe, but the thing is a fact. But the story you're telling yourself is my family will never trust me. So you see, what I'm carving out in the book is this idea that on top of everything you're like, below everything you're thinking, not on top of it, below everything you're thinking is the ultimate truth. What you have to do, your work, your work, my work, all of our work is constantly husking away all the stories we are telling ourselves on top of what is simply the truth. Okay, I'm now. I just turned 40 years old. I can, I'm, I'm shamelessly talking about having one ball on a podcast. So clearly, <laughs> I've worked through it. Right. But I no longer think I won't have kids. I no longer think I'll never find someone to love me. I no longer think I'm horribly disfigured. Because I met a lot of people that have a lot worse problems, first of all. But second of all, because I worked through the fact that all those other things I was adding were stories. Right. You know what I used to Google when it, the internet first came out? Testicular implants. And I used to find a whole world, a whole huge society of people that would get gel and silicone and marble stuff in, installed in their bodies because that's what we do with shame. Right. We listen to the stories and we try to solve them. You know, you try to fix them with nice clothing or a cool car or a sexy job. But like, what story are you telling yourself? That simply is not true, that you need to husk away and get back to the root base facts. Okay. That, that, there you go. Worth the price of admission right there, folks, uh, is that because that telling, we see that we talked about that with, there's always somebody who has something worse. Uh, but it was a year ago, I guess I interviewed Nick Vujicic. He's the guy in no arms and no legs. And my physicality is such a part, I mean, uh, from being an athlete and, and still today, such a part of me, I, I really cannot fathom that. I would like to think that if I woke up in the morning and that was it, that I would not uh, do away with the rest of my life, I, but I can't fathom it. And that guy is one of the most secure, confident people I have ever encountered in my life. It's, it's just, it's mind boggling. But he did that. He told a different story. So, but I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for, for you, you brought that around. The, the facts are the facts, but the story around them. I want people to hear that because we're all suffering from the negative stories, especially, and we can write different redemption. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We, you well, redeemed you, it. Well, exactly. And, you know, you, Leslie and I would get into fights after her miscarriage and we would we would say, well, it's because you said this and remember we got into that big fight and oh, that wow. probably, that probably is what did that. That's probably what caused the miscarriage or it's this thing you ate. Remember we, we shouldn't have done that, that sporting event that that was not safe or, you know, we were telling ourselves all these stories about her miscarriage. And then we eventually thought, let's tell ourselves a different story. Let's tell ourselves this story that your body is strong. Your body is healthy. Your body knew the fetus was not developing properly and your body ended the pregnancy naturally because it was not working out. That story is different. Neither one is true. We don't know. But because we told ourselves a different story, we then could move forward after her miscarriage. And we were lucky she was able to get pregnant again. And, and we had a child from that. So I'm just telling you, oftentimes we were, here's the miscarriage. We're blaming each other for it. Wow. You know, this is a horrible thing to do in a couple. But we just naturally, well, we shouldn't have done this. We should, no, tell yourself a different story. Your body's smart and healthy and it it was not working. So now your body wants another one. <laughs> that's what we did. Yeah. It wasn't easy. I'm just telling you that's what we had to do. Man, I, I, I got to see this in real life. My mother, Joanne Miller, and she wrote a book uh, called Haven of Peace. And in that, she talks about this, Neil, and she writes her story. She came from a pretty hard background. And she literally writes the story out. It's a page or two. She doesn't elongate it. But she says, here's, here's a story I used to live in. Here's a story that's realistic based on what, what do you think of as the facts. And it's all this negative stuff. 
But now then she turns the page and she goes, let me write another story. So she really did that. And I love the exercise of thinking about right now, everybody take the bad, take that negative, all those negative facts and write that negative story. Be, be honest, you know, vent, whatever, and then flip it over and then now make yourself write a different one based on what you've seen, the redemption, the positives, the good. It's, it's mind blowing, but uh, kind of like Seth's statement up there, we're going to hear this and how few of us are actually going to do it. And it's everything, the story we tell. You make a statement and I don't even know where I got it out of the book. And I just wrote the kind of the quote, you said, don't take life and yourself so seriously. Uh, but to hear that and to embrace it, because again, we're back to the, you know, the teenage girl and the over drama. We feel like it is everything. It's so serious when we're so insignificant and you do such a good job of that. I, I guess I just want to say thank you for that. In the book, you're telling your stories, talk about being vulnerable in them. And you helped me do that as I looked at this, to not take myself so seriously. This is something I have control over. I'm not, well, honestly, I'm not a victim. I think that I don't, and I don't even know, yeah. guys, I'll, have to, I'll ask forgiveness if I miss that. I don't know that I saw you speak towards victim in the book, um, but you really make such a strong case in that. And, you know, the title is You Are Awesome. I was uh, going to call it You You Really Are Awesome. Yeah. As it, it was meant to be an antidote to the idea that we all think we're not good enough. But whenever I showed everybody the title, You Really Are Awesome, they mentally miscued it. And mm-hmm. they all said, oh, you are really awesome. You typed it wrong. You spelt it wrong. So I just left it plain as You Are Awesome. But the whole point of the book and I don't know if it's just me looking at you now, but you got tears in your eyes. Like, listen, it's to tell you that, you know what, regardless of what you think, you're great. You yeah. are. You just need a reminder on, on remembering that you're great. And this book is meant to tell me that and to tell you that because I'll tell you what, the world right now is conspiring to tell all of us the opposite. You're not good enough. You don't look pretty enough. Yeah. You, aren't, you don't have enough stuff. Look at all the advertisements they're feeding you that are tailored to your profile, the side of your toolbar. It's like, you need this. You need that. It is exhausting these days to live. It is. We all have NDD, nature deficit disorder. We're not connecting with human beings, IRL, in real life enough. And we are being fed a constant algorithmic, by our algorithmic overlords, a message that we stink. And it's exhausting. So this book is a punch in the face of the current world because I don't like the anxiety rates rising, loneliness, loneliness rates rising, depression rates rising suicide rates rising. Yeah. It makes me angry because I don't, I know that that's coming from the messaging. Yeah. And, and there we're back to that. Everything we should be at the time when everything is the easiest it's ever been. And it is the worst. And I appreciate you saying that we live in a culture. I'm not a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist necessarily. I don't think that all corporate is evil, but they're out to make money. And how do they do that? It's by selling us stuff. And the best way to do that is say, Hey, what you have is not enough. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's, I think we're all, we can't get away from it. There it is. We, we cannot be in a bubble enough. So we've got to at least get it out on the table and deal with it. Just like me with the imposter syndrome wave, say, hi, I know you're there. I'm not going to pay attention to you, but, uh, but there you are, man. Thank you. It was a joy to read the book. It's been a joy to do this with you. Thanks for bringing this to everybody. Next time uh, you're on tour and you need somebody to present you, man, I am all, <laughs> I am all there, Neil. Uh, thank- I would love that. I it's a joy talking to you. You've done so much research. You read the book. You're so intimate with it. And more than anything else, you're a passionate host. And I have no, I have no no doubt in my mind. That's why your show has grown the way it's grown. So congratulations on all your success. Thank you, Neil. And thank you for taking the time to be here. I can't wait for the audience to hear your art, your gift. Thanks brother. 
All right, friends, honestly, my hope from this episode is you are inspired to take action on something that's not playing it safe. That uh, we're not just talking about going out and being risky for the sake of riskiness, but it's just not about being safe, as the title of the show says, and being fragile. I mean, nobody's watching the next blockbuster hit about that safety and fragility. So be like those who inspire you. Me too. I'm talking to myself. Again, I encourage you visit neil.blog, subscribe to his podcast, Three Books with Neil Pasricha, and you can get his just released new book, You Are Awesome, at neil.blog or wherever you buy your books. Coming up next in episode 728, what to say to sell your product or service. We generally approach conversations like we approach walking. You just kind of do it, right? You don't think much about it. Well, while we aren't judge too much on our walking unless you know you're a runway model we're definitely judged or maybe i should say we're responded to according to how we do conversations that reality is dramatically maximized when we have an agenda when we're trying to influence someone to do something whether that is going out on a date or getting kids to do homework or chores or a big one selling a product or service or idea Most everyone listening is at some aspect, I would guess, trying to sell something, especially in our work, business, and careers. We're directly selling a product or service, or we're trying to sell an idea to someone. Uh, And we always, along with it, are selling ourselves. And you may be just trying to sell someone on you, giving you a raise or a promotion or a chance or an opportunity. So again, how do you go about it? Do you have any strategy at all? Well, we talked with Phil Jones, Phil M. Jones, in episode 723, and some of what we covered was from his book, Exactly What to Say. Well, with this topic in mind, I asked the Ziegler audience this question. If I was really interested in your product or service and you had the chance to pitch me on it right now, do you have any strategy for what you would say and how you would say it? Well, in this show, we're going to work on covering this topic and helping you understand the strategy you will want for yourself. Well, till then, folks, thank you, as always, for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.